Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. Our guest today is Adelaide Bonn, a French writer, actress and voice artist whose first book, The Little Girl on the Ice Flow, details the scale and impact of child sexual abuse. First published in France in 2018, it was recently translated into English and it's a memoir about the horrific rape she was subjected to as a child and how it affected everything in her life that came after it. It's a really difficult read, but an important one. And needless to say, if you have any sensitivities around this area, bear in mind that this will probably be quite an intense listen. Adelaide was in Dublin last month for the International Literary Festival Dublin and she came into the Women's Podcast Studio while she was here. She spoke to our co-producer, Jennifer Ryan. Adelaide, you were robbed of your innocence when you were just nine years old. Can you explain what happened? Well, it was a a Sunday, a sunny Sunday afternoon and um, I was coming back home and a man stopped me in the street and told me stories and then in the staircase of the building where my parents lived, he raped me. And your book is called The Little Girl on the Ice Flow. It's a memoir and it's about that catastrophic event, but not just about that. It's about everything that came afterwards and how it infected everything in your life. So how did you come to sit down and write it? Well, it was I, I mean, it was a long, long life path. Uh, you know, I, I've always been writing and something would stop me from doing it or to finish anything. And um, when I discovered that everything in my life, all the disasters, all the self-hatred, self-harm, all the poisonous thoughts that I had were linked to that very event in my life and that I've been going to so many therapists and that none of them told me. I I thought I need to I need to, to write a book about it. I need to tell the other people this so out, outrageous that nobody knows and that nobody's uh and, and so I think the first uh yeah I I wrote it out of rage at the beginning. I wanted um both those things to be known and and at the same time I I think I understood that if I wanted to write, uh, I had to start by my own story. That other, I had to reclaim my own language and to find my my words and to turn all the words upside, uh, like the right side up again. And for that, I I needed to write it. So it's kind of the both. Because for a long time, you didn't remember what happened to you. Is that right? Yes, I had I suffered traumatic amnesia, like. I think it's 98% of the kids who suffer child abuse. So I had partial uh, traumatic amnesia, not total. 
uh, it means that I re I remind uh, I recalled part of what happened to me, and so I was able to tell my parents right after the the rape that something happened to me and and some part of it, but the rest was very blurry, and I had I was very confused. Uh, well, I was dissociated, but at the time I didn't know that word neither, and so it took me years. Well, uh, uh, twenty years to recall the first. Um, memories of what that, what uh, what really happened, how how we raped me, and uh, and it took me more years even to understand that what it did to me was rape because I like a lot of people and I, I hope this is changing but you know for me rape was the stereotype was a, a penis in inside of someone and, and for me it was well many ways but uh, the first way I remember was digital uh, rape and I had no idea that, that was rape and so that took a long time also to to put the white the right word on it to understand that it was this word he had done to me and that maybe all my sufferings and all my hatred uh, there was reason for it and maybe I was not as guilty as I thought. Did you feel really angry when you realized that that was in, trapped inside you for all these years and that I mean, you must have felt a lot of things. I mean, there's a relief, I suppose, at, at recognising that this is what's wrong. Well, the thing is with traumatic memory that it doesn't come all back at once. And so I think the first thing I felt was just pure terror because it is very terrifying because the way it comes back, it's exactly as if you are have, as if you are back in the staircase and you're nine years old, old again and it's happening to you exactly the same way. It's a very vivid memory. It's very different from the the other kind of memories we have that are uh, softened by time, right? It happens exactly with the same intensity. And so it was absolutely terrifying. Um, and then the symptoms grow even worse after I, I discovered, well, after the first memory came. So I was very lost at first and I had no one to explain me what was happening to me. So, I th well, I've already thought that for a long time that I was crazy, but then at that time I thought I was completely insane and that, uh, uh, yeah. And so it's. I think I, I, I began to be angry, uh, well, started, I know, I don't know. Well, first, when I uh, understood that this was PTSD, was something that was known since the 70s uh, and that uh, there were so many people to help when terrorist attack occurred. But when it's women and children, no one was formed, no one was helping them and no one was telling us this is what we had. And that made me very angry um, because there are so many of us. I mean, uh, in Europe, it's one kid out of five who is victim of child abuse. So, yeah, that, that, a lot of rage for that. And then also... When I understand, uh, when I slowly became a feminist, uh, understanding that what happened to me was not private, was not intimate, but was part of a system, a system covering man violence uh, towards other men, other women, children. Um, yeah, that made me very angry. And I think that's the moment when I started to get better. Um, when this anger started to build in me and... It gave me so much power, <laughs> you know, um, and uh, and and I felt more strong. And then I I, I started to meet other people, uh, sisters, 
uh, on the ice floor uh, in a way and 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 rage i think was a uh, uh, the best medication i've ever had <laughs> i mean and i i'm still quite uh, uh, enragé uh, uh, angry angry yeah. yeah and i think uh And I hope I'll be for all my life. I think it's, it's a, a very powerful good thing. thing. It's yeah, a powerful thing because you, yeah. you replaced the terror with yes. rage, and there's a strength in that. It is, and it's not rage like uh, well, because I mean I've been angry about myself for so long, and I've been destroying myself for so long. But that's not at all that. Well, actually, we should invent another word because maybe rage uh, is too negative mm. but uh, the rage i'm talking about right now it's something that is very joyful something that wants you to give you strength to move mountains and and it's it is a big mountains i mean it's been centuries <laughs> that uh, nothing has been really done and 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 we need to be all together and have a lot of rage to to move it there's yeah. a lot to dismantle yeah <laughs> the title of the book and you, you mentioned it there about being on a nice flow a little girl alone on a nice flow is that sort of a reference to because I know you talk about it in the book too about how in your in your teenage years in your 20s you wore a smile you know on the outside mm -hmm. you looked kind of happy and carefree but there was masking that terror you had nightmares everything beneath mm -hmm. is that that is that what you meant by being this little girl on an ice floe that nobody really knew you were completely alone well yes when i was a teenage girl i was a very i looked uh, outgoing cheerful I was always smiling uh, I had to pretend that I was still the same because I think and I can analyze that now like of course at the time I was just doing the best I could to to be able to breathe you know but uh, I think I, I needed so much that peculiar way my parents looked at me as if I was this nice uh, good girl that I knew that I wasn't because I, I thought I was evil And so I needed that look in their eyes because, for me, they were, the others were the only one to still believe in me. And so I, I, I didn't want to disappoint them, and I was so afraid to destroy them all with all my ugliness and and darkness. And so uh, I tried to be to go out the most I can. To to you know, I was a huge party goer when I was uh, uh, a little older. Uh, I drank a lot. I smoked pot. Well, I, you know, I needed to escape myself so much. Um, and the little girl on the ice floor. Well, when I started therapy, because uh, I did understood that something was very wrong with me, that I, I needed help, and that I could not. Um, well, I was very afraid of committing suicide, and I, I didn't want to do it to my parents and to my because I had good and caring parents that I had no idea what I was going through. And I couldn't talk to them. I, and, and so uh, I did it in secret because I didn't want them to know that I was going to see a therapist. And and it's when I was trying to describe to him, you know, we were talking about my feelings and I would tell, well, I'm, uh, now I feel a lot like that. And every single time, all of a sudden, I was feeling so numb uh, in an... Um, Immense. Adrift. Adrift, icy desert and completely, totally alone and and waiting. And so that's how I described it to him. I said, it's like I'm this tiny little girl 
stuck on the ice floor waiting for something and and we would spend hours and hours and hours in therapy to understand what she was waiting for. And, uh, well, he was a good therapist, but he was not trained in PTSD and he had no idea of the consequences of sexual violence. So I'm thankful to him because he was there and, and that he helped me, um, you know, to keep hope. Um but we didn't find the answer and, and and she was waiting for me to understand what had happened to me in that day on the staircase. And I don't want to give away too much of what's in the book specifically because, like I said, I want people to read it. I think they should. But you use a jellyfish as a metaphor mm-hmm. in the book. Can you explain that? Yeah. Um, it took me a long time to find this image because I wanted the reader not to overlook my story, not to be like um, a witness of it. I wanted him to feel it. To I wanted the words to crawl inside him and for him to, yeah, to be deeply um, concerned about what was going on in the book because I'm so fed up of, like, I mean, it's been years and years and years that we're talking that rape is a disaster and that it's uh, destroying everybody's life and but then it's just something it's like oh my god oh she had rape poor girl but I didn't I wanted the reader to to change his view on it and to understand very deeply and so I I wanted uh, a metaphor that could explain how how PTSD symptoms work and uh, jellyfish there are those beautiful creatures in in the ocean and you're swimming and it's a beautiful day out and uh, and you're having the best time of your life swimming in the ocean and all of a sudden they strike and it's unaware, they take you unaware and, and it's uh, very violent and, uh, and and stays on for a long time after they're gone and, and that's pretty much what some of the symptoms uh, are. Um, I mean, sometimes, you know, you're, everything is going all right and and you cross the street and all of a sudden, and you don't know why, you just lose it. You lose the ability to believe in life and that is to think it's worth it. You just don't see the point anymore and, and you look at the cars and say, I might as well just give up. And uh, Or like uh, violent thoughts, like they always come very unaware and, uh, and I want that. And also, but that's something that, you know, translation sometimes is difficult in French. We say for, to say jellyfish, we say meduse, and meduse is the same word as medusa. Uh, you know the mythological uh, character who was a very young girl. She was eleven or twelve, raped in a temple by Poseidon, and and she was um, judged and condemned to have you know snaky hair, and then she had a head cut off, and then. And that's exactly what's going on in, in the society for uh, victims of rape. They are the ones who are designed as guilty. They are the ones who are um, um, uh, don't go outside at night because otherwise you'll get raped. You know, uh, they are the one to frighten the other girls into um, sh- uh, shrinking their um, their life in. Uh, stay at home outside. It's dangerous. You can be. You know, all those threats of rape. When actually everyone knows that it's uh, um, 
92, well, in France, it's 92% of the time the rape occurs by someone you know. So the most dangerous place for a woman is home. Uh, yeah, so that's that's a very long answer. Sorry, it's <laughs> <laughs> good. Um, I want to talk about the way you write the memoir because um, you're looking back at your life in great detail. And when you speak about yourself as a girl, it's sort of in the third person. It's she, Adelaide, she, younger she. But then Adelaide today interjects every so often to give context, and it's I. Can you tell me why you chose to write it in this way? I tried to be the most precise I could. And uh, when I was writing, it just didn't feel right to write I for all those passages. And for one moment, it quite bothered me. I was like, that, I, I thought that was very weird. And I felt I was like Napoleon, like talking about myself as a third person. And, uh, and so I tried to change it, but it didn't work. And so I thought, okay, well, let's let's do as it comes, and then I'll, we'll have time. I'll have time when I we we edit it and work on it uh, to change it, and let's do it like that. And and it was quite strong the feeling that it had to be she, and it took because I really think that well, that's something I've discovered actually that when you write something, your writing knows a lot more than you actually know as the writer. And it took me, I think, yeah, like a year and a half to suddenly realize something that was so obvious, but I just uh, didn't realize before, that every single time I used she, it was all the passages of my life where I was so dissociated that just I was not even thinkable. Um, uh, at, at those times in my life, I, I was like... This very outgoing girl, then one hour after, this completely depressed girl, then one hour later, this puking girl in the bathroom, then one hour later, this girl uh, faking, uh, ha ha ha, and then, you know, um, I, I had so, I thought I, would, I had so many personalities, I thought I was completely insane, and and there was no way I could call me subject, you know, I, um, I, I, it was time in my life I would only define myself by the way people would see me. If someone would see me, oh, you're such a great girl, then I would be such a great girl. But then I would need someone else to tell, you're such a great girl, otherwise then I would be this ugly, terrible girl that I knew I was. And I was feeding on other people's opinion on me, but I had no idea who I was, and, and there was no way I could say I. So when I was writing, I was already a lot better. Um, I had found, finally, a good therapist that was trained in um, post-traumatic disorders. And, and so I was, was coming, and, and, and since I was writing the book at the same time, the book is really the birth of I, in a way, like you can see it uh, coming, and it really, yeah, I think he was born with the writing of the book. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. You've mentioned therapy a few times there and I saw you speak at the International Literary Festival Dublin last night with Louise O'Neill and the both of you were sort of, uh, you're both waxing lyrical about therapy and sort of joking about it, but it's clear that it's, it has been very important. How, how important has it been for you in recognising what happened to you and dealing with it? Well, I mean, it saved my life. Like, really? Uh, when, well... When when people are going to uh, read my book, they'll see that I've tried so many, so many 
kind of therapist and I've banged on every door as I could. And it took me a very long time to finally find someone that was um, aware and knew and yeah, and was trained about what I really had, which was PTSD. Uh, and to, but once I've, I found her, uh, the fact of understanding that it was normal, that what I had were symptoms, that it was all, um, that you could read it in books written by doctors and that it was not my personality, that all those violent thoughts, perverted ideas, uh, self-harm, self-hatred, bulimia, nightmares did not belong to me but belonged to what he had done to me, that it was not me. It just changed everything, changed everything, um, yeah. Uh, well, but then the thing is that there are so few therapists that are actually trained to what uh, sexual violence is. And, you know, in France, you can still find so many psychoanalysts that would tell you, well, it's fantasies you have with your family, blah, 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 and terrible things. So that must change. Uh, yeah. So all therapies are not good, but therapy is great. When um, when you were a child, after you were raped, you did the, the right thing. You told your parents. The police became involved. And many years later, the man, as, who was a serial rapist and paedophile, the man who, who did that to you was tried for what he did. And that doesn't happen for many, for most victims of sexual assault. So what was, what was that like? Well... It was terrifying because he was so violent. But at the same time, it enabled me to recognize this violence out of myself because I knew it so well. I knew I know him so well, same way that he knows me so well because at that very moment in my life, there was only he and I and it changed everything for me. But it gave me also an insight of who he was because I've been carrying him in me for so many years. And he made me able to give it all back to him, all this violence. So so it was hard, uh, like, you know, but it was very important. And also the very the most overwhelming thing was meeting the other victims. Um, there is one word that I discovered on the trial that is tenderness. And I think before the trial, I had no idea what that world was. I mean, I was already a mom and I love my little boy very much. But this kind of tenderness, the fact that you can be so close to someone and having nothing to prove and just give and receive love with no... And understand each other and spoke the same language. I discovered it when I met the other victims and, and, and it was utterly beautiful. Um, I mean, it was not like we didn't, ha we were very shy with each other, but it, it was very intense and, and I kept great um, link with them. And, and yeah, it was very important. But as you say, well, in France, it's 0.3 of the pedo criminals that actually go to court. So it never happens. And so... We need law to, ch to change. It takes time. And, well, I don't know in Ireland, but in France, uh, deputies and government are not very keen to changing it. So I think we, sh we have to, to, to yeah, invent new ways of, of repairing ourselves collectively. Yeah. In Ireland, we've had a lot of reform of late. Yeah. It's been really good, much needed. 
lot of work still needs to be done because it's one thing changing the law, but it's about educating uh, our is. police force, so our guardie, you know, in recognising what is. We had a lot of uh, changes around domestic violence, for instance. So, yes, it's in the statute books. The law mm-hmm. is the law, but how it's you know, policed is mm-hmm. another thing. So there's still a lot of work to do, I think, everywhere on it. Um, one thing I want to ask you as well is for a long time, what happened to you was referred to as unwanted sexual contact. And how, and not rape, which was what, what it was, I know it was later, changed that up. But how important is that, is the language around sexual assault for victims in recognising the, the damage that is being done to them? Well, I think it's this—it's the key. Um, when you don't use the good word, you can't understand what happened to you. You need words to open doors. And and for me, when I understood that it was rape, everything fell into their good place. Like all of a sudden, I was not this insane, oversensitive, hysterical girl uh, that was just a wreck. Uh, I, I was someone who has been raped. And, and that was so important for me. And I think words are a huge battle to lead because, I mean, for years and years, for centuries, um, words about sexuality, most of them have been used by perpetrators. And so uh, a lot of them are more about domination than relation. And, and it's very hard for a victim when she describes what happened to her, to use words that are actually related to sexuality because sexual violence has nothing to do with sexuality. Well, I mean, yes, in a geographical point of view, but that's it. Um, there's no relation between someone who wants to destroy s- someone else and, um, and it's a question of power and abuse of power and, uh, and not about desire or, uh, you know, being attracted to young kids or whatever insanity we heard about it. Uh, pedocriminals are not monsters they are just average people uh, our cousins, our uncle, our grandfathers our neighbour uh, people that everybody likes that sometimes get their nerves on a little kid because they won't tell and it's easy uh, and they're not like creepy monster that lives in woods you know they, they, uh, yeah, they are everywhere and, and they are people we know uh, and I think all those Things should change. Like, for example, the word pedophile, I think, is a very dangerous word. It's a new word. It's been invented in the 19th century by a group of pedophiles, pedocriminals, uh, at a moment when um, children, uh, you, you, when you had, like, child brothel everywhere in Europe, and it was okay for uh, people from the upper society to, to go there and rape kids and... Uh, and pedophiles in Greek means um, having friendship for a kid, which is the main lie. It's the lie they all say, I am your friend, I, did, I, did, I do it for your own good. And this very word is, for me, uh, should change in every language, like everyone uses it in, in Ireland, in France, in Italy, in Spain. And uh, there are so many words we should change. I use pedocriminal. I never use pedophile again uh, because for me, it's, I, I just can't hear it. Uh, and what about the law around uh, sexual assault in France? I know, uh, again, you, you spoke about this a little bit last night and there are a lot of problems to do with the law in France. For instance, there's, there's no age of consent. Mm-hmm. And there were heralded reforms supposed to come through under Macron that didn't happen. 
Yeah, well, the main problem in France is that uh, rape for children is considered as the same as the rape for adults, the same law. So uh, to prove that you've been raped in France, you have to prove that it was by surprise, uh, violence, contraintes, um, uh, that forced you to, and, and I'm missing one. Well, anyway, yeah. and so you, you you have to prove it, and uh, but it's, it's like all of those things that you you said that you recognize that it didn't have to be all those things to make it rape. So yeah, of by course, law, because it, most of the time, you know, you, uh, a rapist all he has to do is to look at at the victim, and uh, uh, it's it's enough to dissociate the victim, and and doesn't need to be uh, violent, doesn't need to be. Uh, threatening you know uh, and especially when it's a kid because it's an adult and so uh, and so the fact that we don't have um, an age of consent means that in France the age of consent is five so if you have a perpetrator that is smart enough and has good lawyer he can prove that the kid was actually curious about it and wanting to know things about blah 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 blah, blah, blah and the, uh, and And it happens a lot. Like last year, we had six different uh, trials with girls 11 years old, 12 years old, and the perpetrator were 30, 40, and they 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 went out of the court innocent uh, because the rape was not. Uh, they said no. It, well, she was. Uh, she gave her consent, but she can't. She's 11 and he's 40. What what kind of a consent can it be? Um, so that must change, and it. What kind of public re reaction was there to that? You know, are people huge outraged? public reaction? Like, I mean, it was the year of Me Too, and so um, it it was like a historical moment to change the law, and that uh, we all thought that they will change the law, and they did not. Well, they changed some of it, like the um, the status of limitation. Uh, it's now ten years. Um, now, when you've been ra raped as a kid, you have until you're forty eight to press charge, and before it was 38. So you you also write about in, in the book uh, your experience of sexual assault as a young actress, and you mentioned Me Too, the era of Me Too, um, but we had a letter signed by nearly 100 French actresses you know, uh, criticising that campaign, accusing it of censorship. Have attitudes from the events that you just talked about, the court cases involving 11-year-old girls, Have attitudes begun to change in France a little bit as part of that wave of Me Too? Well, um, when uh, when Me Too arrived, my book was already under the press. I mean, uh, 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 it was a wonderful surprise and uh, I had no idea it would come this way and it was, uh, yeah, uh, funny to see that, uh, yeah, the link that uh, in my book, the, I had no idea it was, it was about to happen. But in France, the reaction to Me Too was very, very conservative. And, um, well, you know, in France, it, it is a country that is where seduction and domination are so linked. Um, and where women who have power, because the women who signed that tribune, they have power, Catherine Deneuve, like, I mean, they're huge powerful persons and they learned that their seduction was their weapon and, and pretty much the only one they had and so they're afraid of losing it uh, well that's how I, I analyze it uh, because because it's such a patriarchal pat, bah, patriarchal patriarch, patriarchal thank you country and very misogynist and um 
and you know like uh, flirting um is a um a way in every business that uh, you that uh, uh, people who talk to each other and uh, and it's terrible because i mean it, it leads to so many uh, sexual harassment things that are undercover it's, it's it is slightly changing i mean slightly uh, the big like the the big uh, stage director or movie director that everyone knows are uh, sexual um, uh, aggressor, uh, uh, predator predator uh, did not fall in France and uh, we all thought they will because everyone knows them but uh, nope they did not so see it's slower is uh, but some other heads did fell and and it, it is starting there's just I mean, it's been centuries, uh, and we are a country where things go slow, and men have been in power for way too long. What was your reaction like to your book when it was released? Um, well, the reaction was beautiful, uh, I have to say. Uh, I, has, I had a huge press coverage, uh, so many medias, and, and, and it sell very well, and I think... I was very lucky to to be like I mean in the to come for it to come out at the at, at the moment of me too and uh, and well I think what makes me the more happy about it is that I, I I so much wanted it to be some kind of a toolbox for the victims to be understand to understand what's that what they were going through were symptoms that you could call them symptoms and that they were nothing to do with them or with the personality they had but that. Had everything to do with what I've been done to her, and um, and I'm very happy today because I, I well I've received so many letters, and uh, and many are from therapists that tell me well now I uh, every single time I have a patient coming to me that has suffered rape I I tell her to read your book and so it start the conversation differently I know that there's two university in France that that now now have it uh, on the program because they call it uh, like a clinic case uh, and because it is very precise and and so and I had also like words of lawyers and you know I know that it it is used as as a real tool to understand better uh, what are people what people are going through when they're raped and 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 I think it helps and that's wonderful I mean I, I couldn't have dreamed better than that yeah it must be amazing it is <laughs> And here am I in Dublin, you know, like <laughs> my book is translated in seven languages. It's crazy. It's beautiful. Uh, one final question to ask you. Today, uh, you sit in front of me, you're a published author, you're married, you're the mother of a beautiful five-year-old boy. Are you free of the anxiety, um, fear and the violence that haunted so much of your life now? Well, yes. I mean, I don't go through the symptoms anymore. I don't have self-harm or self-hatred, violence, thoughts. All that have disappeared. And that is quite a shock because I thought I had to deal with it for my entire life. Like I would have never bet one day it would disappear. Um, and at one moment at the beginning, I was like, oh my God, something is missing. You know, <laughs> when you're so used to going, yeah. So I had to like learn to live with the other me that was the... Me, I guess, but um, uh, that has disappeared. But then, on the same time, it's not nothing has been erased. Like it's not something that you can just forget about it and then 
turn the page, you know. Um, it's part of my story and it will always be in me. And um, I think it's something about... I know deep down in my very body what hatred is. And I've seen a human face, a brother face, changed and look at me with eyes that wanted to destroy me. And that look on me, I will never forget. There is something I know about human soul that uh, that I will keep in me forever. It's, it's, it's a knowledge that I mean, that I share with so many other people. Uh, uh, and also, like, I don't know, like a journalist that goes on war conflict and soldiers and that part of human that I, I would have liked not to know, that I do know that I have to carry with me. I... I I can't live in a, you know, unicorn and fairy tale world uh, because I know what the world is and what humans can do to their brothers and sisters, uh, to their fellow humans. And that is hard. Some, some morning I wish I could be, you know, very uh, cheesy and naive. Yeah, well, but then I have to live with it. And it also gave me insights of what other people are going through and may enabled me to to meet people in a deeper way that I would have maybe been able if I hadn't gone through all that. So, yeah, it's black and white, you know, like life. But your your book is doing such good now. It's helping yeah. so many other people. So as painful and as horrible it is that you had to go through what you went through, this is so positive to come out of it and you should be really really proud of what you've done thank you Adelaide thank you very much for speaking to the women's podcast thank you and that's it for today thank you very much to Adelaide Bonn and a reminder that her book is called The Little Girl on the Ice Flow and it's available in all good bookshops and that ice flow is actually spelled F-L-O-E just in case you're looking for it on the old interweb Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then please head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.